an opera singer and a comedian walk into a bar. She's gotten a taste of a career in classical music. He spent several decades in the entertainment industry. They get to talking about show business, and they find that they actually have a lot in common. Welcome to another conversation from the high-low art divide, in which your host, opera singer turned experimental performer Emma Katrovis, talks to, and argues with, comedian and TV writer turned novelist Nicholas Anthony. For this New Year's episode, we decided to talk about the Beatles and their influence on a few pieces of high art. Mainly new journalist Joan Didion's essay, The White Album, and avant-garde singer Kathy Barbarian's covers of Beatles songs. We also briefly talk about American composer Ned Roram's essay, The Music of the Beatles, and we even play some of the music we talk about during the episode. Our starting point is the 2021 Peter Jackson documentary, Get Back, edited from never-before-seen footage of the Beatles at work before their last public concert in 1969. The opening line of Joan Didion's essay, The White Album, hangs over our conversation. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. Nick and I circle around the question, were the Beatles exceptional, lucky, or both? Does one need opportunity or even fame to create one's best work? Is trying to tell a story about the Beatles or any other iconic artist that answers these questions even useful? Get your drinks and enjoy this conversation about the Beatles, the 60s, and the avant-garde. So, first recording since the summer. Yes. We should acknowledge that first. Yes. Um, And we decided that our first recording after the summer was going to be themed and about the Beatles. But not because we just want to like have a fan episode about the Beatles, but because there's just so many other things to talk about having to do with high art, low art interaction, which is what this podcast segment yeah. is about. And I also think it's crazy that after, uh, what's it been, 40 years since they put out a song? They Maybe, recently yeah. put out a song and mm-hmm. that's the to not much fanfare. And I even feel like people are who are big fans haven't really been that excited about it. And Yeah, I'm, what do you think that says about, are we just oversaturated? I think that's exactly what it is. You know, we were talking about that conversation where, you know, is everyone boring or are we bored or is there this malaise are you talking about derezowitz's essay we're all bored of culture now (laughs) yeah and it's and you know the podcast that i heard of his he was going on this rant about how there's just not as much good stuff and i i just i couldn't disagree more yeah. So <laughs> now and then, I mean, I think it's a it's a beautiful. I'm, I, I like the story behind it. The, the story is incredible. It was, it, it, it was really created in three phases. Where one, it was on a just a, a forgotten tape that Lennon kind of put together when he was being just a stay at home dad. Yeah. And in then, the seventies. In the seventies. Like, pretty early, then, like seventy four. Yeah, sometime yeah. during that during that time. Yeah. Well, because that's even and, like you know six years before he died. Yeah. No. And then Yoko Ono dug it up for McCartney because for the the in the nineties with this idea that they were gonna do a reunion with the remaining three Beatles, I yeah. think. Well they were I don't know if they were gonna do a reunion, but they were at least trying to create yeah, record more music. some stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah and there exactly. was in the nineties there was this big resurgence 
Beatles resurgence? Yeah, it was really? like, I, I can only speak to it from my experience, which was a, you know, middle school, high schooler in Minnesota, but we we were just obsessed. Huh. And I think some of it has to do with, I don't know what it was, but there was a big, it was a nostalgia thing. Like mm. in the 90s, there was just like, they, there was an oh. obsession with the 60s yeah. again. And I, I'm sure there's a myriad of factors mm. but i do remember specifically in the 90s they put out like some like i remember buying a cd where it was it was called like uh fly on the wall like a version of let it be where it had a bunch of like they were re-releasing the tracks but like with raw versions of like uh -huh. you know hearing you know these guys you know in the recording studios and you know less polished well, versions of that the songs. must have been from that session that get back is Correct. Yeah. It's now that we fun. have, you know, the actual, um, you know, that documentary that uh, Peter Jackson put out. Yeah. Because uh, it was over the course of like two weeks. They recorded basically all day sessions. I think, yeah. Almost a month or something. Yeah. It was the session that led up to the to the rooftop the conversation rooftop or the concert. rooftop concert. There's something infuriating about that documentary, but you do it does it does hypnotize you eventually, and you really feel like you're in the room. With what them. is infuriating to um, you? Just how unfocused they are, and and I think I mean what I think of now because you know uh, given the themes of this podcast, is infuriating the right word. Well, maybe you were that's infuriated a word. <laughs> by the the Beatles and their process. I was of, puzzled. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because you know, I'm like I'm thinking now, and I know that this is like my my soapbox, but I mean, <laughs> I mean, go get a podcast. <laughs> That's what this is. Yeah. This is your opportunity this, to say what you want to say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, but I mean, because I think of like you know the same four boys being born today. Yeah. You know, um, what would they have had to do? Would they have ever? Would they have had? And of course, I mean, that's just such a hypothetical because yeah. they have been from Liverpool. Would they have been yeah, living yeah. somewhere else? I mean, there's so many other factors that affect this. But what I think of is how they kind of became, I mean, they, they got their 10,000 hours in, in Hamburg. They had an agent already and they were just playing dive bars off of the beaten path. They were just a band doing their job and getting their 10,000 hours in. And that is a precious thing that we just don't have any i mean certainly four boys you know the that would not would not just get an agent right off the bat unless they were like it's weird from to, it's weird to imagine it's just the weird the word you're using boys, boys? is fascinating that's to me. what i think of because like they're slightly they younger young even, men. even in the well I mean, i'm talking about when they were 15 16, oh yeah, yeah when yeah, they yeah, were yeah, starting gotcha. out yeah Harrison I mean, had to lie about his age in order to be able to go to Hamburg. You don't think that a band can? I mean, there's not bands happening. Oh, there's right so now. many bands. But yeah. what I'm getting at is that they would have had to be their own agents, and they would have had to be get their shit together, and actually, you know, think in terms of promotion and think in terms of you know how do you build an audience, your own audience, you know, and this this bliss of just having a platform to kind of get your ten thousand hours in. Um, in these dive bars where nothing really matters and whatever well, mistakes but I, you make. I think that's still a thing. You can still find places to perform. Yeah, and you know, we've had this conversation before and I just think it is so different now. And, you know, look, maybe the Beatles were the one band from Liverpool that got that opportunity. There's, but there's still true. people playing in bars and that's still a thing. But it's but it's not, the, the frequency is not the same, all, first of all. Secondly... You're the, saying post-pandemic? like pandemic? 
No, I'm saying like just now with how everyone is on their smartphones and people just don't have the same relationship to live music. Yeah. I mean, this is something everyone's talking about. There's a bunch of but YouTubers I, that I'm are talking I'm just saying, here in this, Minneapolis, like, I've been, I've walked into bars that, I mean, there's a place right down the street that, like, it's a small bar. And I walked in there on a Saturday night, and there was, like, the band, and they were playing, like, hardcore punk, I want to say. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, like, the the audience was, like, paying attention you could probably tell there was like some girlfriends and some family in the mm -hmm. crowd and but it was a gig and it, it was like kind I'm of not saying gigs don't happen anymore but this idea of these a band having an agent being taken to yeah, hamburg but they didn't have an agent they like, did at some point they didn't and they figured it out like it just happened like i don't think it, i i like as crazy as the Beatles are, whatever's next is going to be as crazy. And yeah. so we just have to And also to they're be... outliers. And that's what I've always tried to avoid is just is get is having your sights stuck on the one success story out of the thousands and thousands of non-success stories. But I do I mean I do think that the the burden placed on the the individual artist as to their own image and how they're going to sell it and how they're going to build an audience is just more on the shoulders of the individual artist. That's all. I think that there was just more of a system uh, back then, more of a system of, of bars that needed live music. I mean, there was there was just a different relationship to live music. That's all. And today the Beatles would, would have to do a lot more focused, organized work around getting an audience. That's all. When I look at them, you know, working, and this was after they were already famous. So it's, it's I mean, in some ways, maybe it's not relevant. But when I look at them, how unfocused they are. And how they just kind of blissfully get to well, but that's what's, f around yeah. while creating these songs. I mean, that's what's kind um, of amazing about it. Yeah, like the that documentary. If anything, you're just like the get back documentary cut. By well, Peter because Jackson. we were all so obsessed with the specific language of the Beatles, and yeah, like and we thought just... everything <laughs> meant something. And they were just like these birds who were literally like, this just sounds better. Let's yeah. change this word to this word because it's just more lyrical. And I think that is... And they were, they were very intuitive. They weren't intellectual at all about what they were doing. Well, because Paul doesn't know how to read music? No, I think none of them really do. Yeah. So they just learned by... By ear. By listening to what they loved and then playing. I mean, the thing is, I think what's, what, what a lot of... So I should, I mean, this we we can segue now into the fact that like the Beatles are generally admired and kind of uh, kind of uh, acknowledged well, by the classical a, music world. Yeah. And I actually think the reason for that is that it's less complex. Like there's something very uncomplicated about the Beatles. Do you think that George Martin, who was their producer, I believe, and uh -huh. I think that was his official title, um, because he was the one who would write the the scores for the symphonies because uh -huh. they had Once a lot they of they started doing that but they didn't do that right off the bat no, that was like no, kind of no. late beatles yeah but is that potentially what you know the fact that there is no is that what the connects... fact that they used orchestras did that well but the fact that, that make the... it more like appealing to classical musicians no 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 i think it was purely the music because classical musicians can listen to it and they can distinguish okay that's the ensemble but this is the music this is the harmonies happening this is what the melody looks like yeah and it's the, the simplicity of that that they uh, that, that resonated i think with a lot of musicians and we can't because it's actually much simpler once you get to the beat like the what what would have sound i mean i was just actually listening to like this um 
this little lecture by Bernstein on the Beatles. Yeah. And um, and he pointed out, uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s, if you went to a piano bar, the music there is going to be much more complex because jazz is much more complex. It's actually incredibly harmonically rich and weird, you know, whereas then the Beatles come in and they're doing their, you know, four, <laughs> four five, six, you know, two, one or whatever. Just, you know, as an example, but it, it like th there's just this kind of childlike almost simplicity to what they're doing. And and that wasn't happening like so I, I mean obviously there was pop music before them yeah and I, you look you know and I they're listen. parroting a lot of it especially what's coming from the u.s yeah and i guess that's the thing that as just a you know a casual observer of the beatles and somebody who like really enjoys um them but i don't understand musically why they are as complicated as they are it is fascinating to me that everyone is still feeling like we're sitting in the shadow of of what they created like the and i guess i'm trying to fully understand like what that impact is i we, we've been listening to the we've been watching that youtube uh is it beto uh, yeah Bayado. yeah he's, he's a big music channel and he does like a, he does basically analysis he does a lot of analyses of famous uh yeah popular and, songs. and and it's fun to kind of see someone break it down you know just from i mean this is something that you can't really do with with comedy and they mm -hmm. haven't been able to do but there is you know music theory and chords and all this stuff mm -hmm. and i guess i you know watching them actually create the song it just seems like they did a really good job of like being a combination of their influences and then just being in the moment yeah i mean that's what what you see when you get to see their process you get to see their kitchen so to speak like in that documentary and what is what's what's amazing about it is is that they're just utterly untheoretical about what they're doing um and they just kind of go with what feels right and what what sounds right to them and there's some there's something really inspiring about that, that well know. but is is the but is the takeaway from that like the beatles were just always going to be great or it, it, can someone look at that and learn something from them like what can we take away from that? Why We're, is that an either or? Well, because the, are they just outliers, like truly, you know, exceptional and like, hey, you know, it just happen to be two of the greatest songwriters in the history of songwriters, and they happen to be in the same band, and because they were as good as they were, it. Do, I do think George probably got better as a result of, and because he became an exceptional songwriter. I don't, I mean, I just, the, the question of like whether the Beatles would have always been the Beatles and whether they were really exceptional or just lucky that they got the platform that they got and then they were yeah. exceptional enough to use the platform that they had to do what they did. I don't know. I mean, it's like you can, you well, have I, to go again, back in time. Yeah, and, we, I'm just saying what can, if someone is listening to this going like, all right, you know, you come at this from this perspective of, you know, more of a classically trained, I come at it mm -hmm. from like a... I had to just invent everything. There was no one mm -hmm. teaching me anything and it was all just peer to peer. What can we learn from wa watching the Beatles? And what I learned from watching them was this kind of insistence on play, mm -hmm. like in, on being in the moment and, and by just showing up and, and being in the space, like, 
literal like i mean in terms of our culture like magic was created like mm -hmm. stuff that ended up being the soundtrack for people's lives because as you call them four boys from liverpool mm -hmm. uh they you know obviously they were in the midst of like fracturing mm -hmm. you could tell that there you know there just wasn't enough room george was clearly interested in having right more I mean, songs that's what that's the sell of the documentaries that you get to see them break up which is just a lot of drama. well and it's quite undramatic it's so undramatic <laughs> and obviously maybe there's things they that hide, we just didn't like the see fact that they that they hide a microphone in a vase so that they can <laughs> listen to lennon and mccartney talk yeah. privately without knowing they're being listened to and what they talk about when they don't know that they're being listened to and this is when George Harrison is basically saying, I'm, I'm leaving the Beatles. I'm yeah. they're trying to get him back. But if we were writing... What they're like basically the saying is that it's because McCartney was a control freak and he was kind of taking, you know, he was, yeah. he was taking over. And he was, he was, he was the leader, yeah. you know, and he was the lead. He was the one who was saying, okay, we're going to do this now. Yeah. He was the one who was, had some semblance of focus compared to the others. And, yeah. um, and, and he... And he was, you know, he often shot down Harrison's ideas and Lennon didn't mind being shot down as much because Lennon was his own kind of personality yeah. and he didn't, he wasn't as threatened well, by it. Well, look, man, Paul McCartney was right. He created the Beatles, you know, like. Yeah, actually, yeah. I was reading that Lennon was actually the first one who kind of brought McCartney on. Well, but my point is like yeah. if he ended up being the, you know, the alpha, if he was the guy who was actually keeping him on the rails. Yeah. He, well, he was it, the it most created all this amazing you know, music. He was, yeah. he was the most practical of the of the four. Yeah, obviously it was a confluence of all. Like if if they were living today, he'd be the one who's like fixing their social media account. Totally, and like thinking about yeah. how they're gonna grow their audience. But they needed all of them. I mean, honestly, I think I think Ringo Starr could have been anyone. <laughs> I, I've seen some videos that show him you know like hey this is what Ringo could have done to this song and he still in his simplicity he did a great job no, I'm not saying he I mean what, what's so interesting about watching them is that they're so they're great but they're also so ordinary they're yeah. not virtuosos any of them not vocally not in terms of their playing like but that's I think what people loved about it is that there's just this childlike simplicity to what they did that was not genius well I, or there was a genius there but it was something other than the playing or the, even the the complexity of the music yeah. itself or the even the sophisticated i guess whatever we call sophistication of the music itself but then you look at a song like it day in the life in that sense day in a life is it's two different songs one written by paul one written by uh john and then they kind of pieced yeah. them together and they, they were started doing... getting experimental yeah. later. Yeah, it's true. I think the interviews I've heard with with uh, with Paul, that's where he felt like they were being more avant garde or influenced yeah. by the. And they were interested. I mean, and maybe even Yoko Ono's influence because she was from I mean, she knew Cage. I didn't know this before the, the documentary. She was doing his errands. That's how she met them was because she met John Lennon because she was working with John Cage. Well, she was. So, Hi, Emma from the what, future here. During our conversation, I kind of muddled the anecdote about Yoko Ono meeting the Beatles. Here's the clear version. In his book, The Lyrics, 1956 to the Present, Paul McCartney writes about meeting Yoko Ono sometime in the mid-60s before she met John Lennon in 1966. 
According to McCartney's account, Ono came to him asking for original Beatles manuscripts to give to John Cage for his birthday. John Cage was a very important avant-garde composer. Um, and I mean, on the White Album, there's there's a piece that they did with Yoko, which is, I mean, it could come from an avant-garde, you know, album of the of the 70s, 80s. You know, yeah. it was just that. Which track? It was something with the word nine in it. Oh, yeah, number nine. Number nine. Yeah, it's yeah. just called number nine. It's just a, like a, yeah, it's literally like him just saying number nine number nine well it's found footage there's a lot of other there's a lot of other excerpts of it's basically a little bit of musique concrète what's what's called musique concrète which is where you take either recorded sounds but also you can take footage from a news report and cut it up and put it in number nine all right let's take a listen to it number nine 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 Doesn't this sound like, I mean, like a music sound or like a, a soundtrack to a film, like something? It sounds like a soundtrack to a film. Too. Well, the, I mean, I think eventually this type of stuff is influencing filmmaking for sure. Yeah. Yeah, maybe what you're picking up. I mean, I forgot that they actually used orchestra, like little excerpts of orchestra, which is interesting. But look, I've I've gone to uh, so many recitals where it was just this kind of, you know, this kind. Yeah, of but this was the beginning music. of that. Well, no, it was in France that that this started, and the the I mean, the the idea was just that there's this new technology of recording. What can we do with it? How yeah. can we work with it in order to create you know music? It reminds me of that time we went and saw that uh, that ballet. Uh huh. I remember we yes. that music was like really haunting. The ballet, and this was a piece actually that's that's in and of itself famous yeah but it was um, the it was found footage of like a, a, man of a homeless was, man who's yeah. singing but it was it was pretty haunting in it and what's fascinating is we didn't know even what he was saying until after mm -hmm. we looked it up and it was it ended up having like some religious connotation well he was singing a spiritual jesus blood never failed me yet and it's by by gavin Bryars who's a composer and it's i think it's considered minimalism actually yeah it's minimalism combined with musique concrète and it's just the the footage of this over and over again of this man singing jesus blood never failed me the performance nick was referring to which uses gavin Breyer's jesus blood never failed me yet was called quintet by choreographer william forsyth which nick and i saw at the national opera in Lyon last summer
But what I kept hearing, what it sounds like, because it sounds like never found me yet. And there's something really haunting about that. Yeah. Never found me yet. Um, yeah, but then to have that paired with this, like, I mean, as far as dance goes, it was as good as it gets, right? Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was great dance. I mean, yeah. it was just perfectly paired. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, and... But that piece has a life outside of that ballet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as you would imagine, you're like, this is how things get introduced to you. And then you're like, oh, that's a whole thing. Or that yeah. goes back to Mozart or mm -hmm. that's this. And I guess what's interesting, again, going back to the Beatles is you were sending me, was it Kathy Barbarian? Yes. I wanted, I mean, that's part of the lineup because I, I actually prepared for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Um, part of the lineup that we wanted to do, because you know the whole high art, uh, high low art divide, um, the 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 Beatles influenced these disparate weird, you know, artists. Well, they were so and, popular, and their and reach. Were, yeah. yeah, I mean, they were iconic. So I prepare. I mean, I kind of prepared two different, let's say, high art individuals who got influenced by the Beatles. First one was Joan Didion and her essay called "The White Album," which is in the novel. It's not a novel. It's a book of essays oh, okay. um, called The White Album. Gotcha. But but the, the one essay that's called The White Album is the title essay. Um, so that's Joan Didion, who I think we both really admire and love. I mean, yeah. it's hard. Actually, when I think of her as high art, she's someone who is kind of borderline pop art. Because I, she was I, I in agree, her yeah. time, in her time, she was just one of those common I mean, she was a cultural commentator in Vogue and, and yeah. all these big magazines. And but she at was a, a time, bit of an icon. Yeah, and I don't know. There's something about, like, you know, we've been talking about common criticism and, like, who's a critic and all these things. Mm -hmm. But because there's such a glut of them now, it's hard to – you kind of – I naturally question people's authority. Like, why are we listening to this person? Yeah. Like, what is it about this particular person? I mean, obviously – you feel it, that way about Joan Didion? Not at all. Yeah. But it, it is it just because there weren't as many and she was just, yeah. you know, like there wasn't as much competition because now I don't know why I'm, you know, I was introduced to Joan Dinian, you know, she's always like been part of the culture. So that name, I, don't, I, I guess I am curious in my own mind, like what allows someone to have the authority? Like Joan Didion for sure just has, has the, authority. the authority. Well, the thing about her, I mean, she's a representative of the new journalism, which was this sort of go, went towards subjectivity actually yeah. in journalism. And I mean, the thing about the White Album is that it is a personal essay and she's not really at that point, you know, because there's whole beautiful pieces she's written in which she does not put her insert herself at all, yeah. where she really is just a journalist. And the White Album is all about her. I mean, it is a deeply personal account. About and, her on the West Coast. And, and yeah. yeah, I mean, she was a witness. She kind of positioned herself and she she kind of reflects on that, her cultural position as someone who was a commentator on the 60s. Yeah. And why, did we and ever get to the bottom of... Why it's called the White Album. Yeah. That's what I was going to talk about now. I would, I mean, actually, just to get us in, I mean, I, I doubt that very many people have necessarily read this essay, yeah, no. but it's a very, it has I mean, a very I, famous it's, opening, it's which is like, about storytelling. Yeah, it's about... It's been two years since I probably read it, yeah. two or three years. So I'll just read the first paragraph because it has that very yeah. famous line in it. The White Album. We tell ourselves stories in order to live. The princess is caged in the consulate. The man with the candy will lead the children into the sea. The naked woman on the ledge outside the window on the 16th floor is a victim of accident. 
or the naked woman is an exhibitionist, and it would be, quote, interesting to know which. We tell ourselves that it makes some difference whether the naked woman is about to commit a mortal sin or is about to register a political protest or is about to be the Aristophanic view snatched back to the human condition by the fireman in priest's clothing, just visible in the window behind her, the one smiling at the telephoto lens. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of the five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely, especially if we are writers, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. So she's basically, she's trying to write a personal essay to end all personal essays, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we tell ourselves stories in order to live is a famous line of hers. And I mean, the whole essay, it's very, it's rather good sized, you know, substantial essay um, is is this collection of images or of, of um, anecdotes, really, from the 60s. Yeah. And in the end, she basically says, I don't know what any of this means. None of this means, like, we, we, I, can, of, I can a, try to give it yeah. a narrative, but I don't know what any of this means. A bit of a hodgepodge. It's a hodgepodge, but, it's, but she's also doing what she does best as a writer, which is, this is something that I love about her work, is that she's able to just take a statement, an image, and put it next to another statement, an image. She doesn't tell you what you're supposed to think about those two together. And yet, and yet it's so profound, the way that she puts them next to each other. Yeah. That's something that I love about Joan Well, Gideon. but that's cinema. Exactly. It is. Well, I mean, she also wrote, she was also um, in Hollywood and she wrote yeah. screenplays. She wrote the third uh, Star is Born with her husband. Yeah. So... Yeah. One thing, I mean, what we should talk about, it's called the White Album, which obviously is a reference to the Beatles. The yeah. Beatles' White Album was not called the White Album. It was just called the Beatles because they clearly just couldn't. That's the thing about them. They're just, they just couldn't decide on a name. They wrote, <laughs> they, they, they recorded an those entire album. Those four boys from Liverpool. Those four boys from Liverpool was just too lazy to think of a name. So they just. So they just called it the Beatles and they don't even have a cover. It's just white. Yeah. And it's just l peak laziness, in my opinion. Well, but, but it it's became also, iconic. Yeah, it's minimal. And sure. Yeah. That, yeah. You can just hide behind minimalism. <laughs> well, but at um, the time it was a big deal. Yeah. And so it was started to be called the White Album because they didn't just want to call it the Beatles. Who would want to do that? That's interesting that it wasn't actually called the no, White Album. No. And then Joe Didion called her book the White Album. Well, the reason for that is what's interesting is she never once mentions the Beatles or the White Album in that whole essay. Yeah. And so what she's doing is she's mirroring what that album, the, the this this iconic album of the 60s was which was this disparate group of songs yeah. that didn't necessarily even belong together yeah um without a name and and i think and this is such a personal essay that basically it's she's trying to write an essay that she could call joan didion just like they made an album that was called the beatles but it's interesting it's, yeah yeah that's but it's interesting but then it's yeah. called the white it's album flipping it it's pretty heady i think that's what she's doing because i mean that's she doesn't explain it obviously she doesn't talk about the white album Do what she does talk about well she doesn't actually say she she doesn't say this but one thing that i read was that because the 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 manson murders are a big part of this because she was terrified when that happened and to her for a lot of people the 60s ended with the manson murders yeah 
um, and yeah. in and just to, to 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 connect it further to the Beatles, they wrote Helter Skelter in Blood yeah. during those murders, and that comes from the White Album. That's a the Helter Skelter, Helter Skelter yeah. as a as a term. And then it gives it all this weird connotation, and everyone thought you know it's like it played into that hysteria of like if you play this music backwards, it's like from the yeah. devil and all this stuff. And yeah. the reality is, is it none of it really meant anything, and all of this meaning was kind of being foisted which, on it. Which we see in this documentary that came out just last year yeah. about how it's it really was just play. Yeah, it's fascinating when you're sitting there listening to Paul McCartney being like, JoJo was a man. What was he? What what he? Man? Like, but he often would sing them without the words. He would just totally. be like, to have a fragment of the words. JoJo yeah. was a man, but he was a really. Yeah. And it was. It's <laughs> wild. Yeah. It's humbling and kind of like, it. it I don't know. It makes me want to play more. It makes me want to just like yeah. show up and. And they didn't question. I mean, they clearly had. I, I mean, they all of most of their arguments were like disputes about about the artistry actually in yeah. the end i mean should we do it this way or that way but they were at the same time there was this kind of weird playful confidence well i guess what they were doing. i mean in in the you know the circles that you've been in and in the rooms that you've been in have you there has to have been times when you just were around somebody and they were just better all the time you know like, like and i've run into that too where you're like you, you just meet a comedian I mean, or something. with writing it's harder yeah, i feel like it's, it's more personal but with music there's this kind of almost athletic yeah aspect to it where it's like you can't deny that this person Th there's just a quality that and i think that um obviously they you know this is 68 when this is what when the get back get back when it was recorded i think it was 69 it was like January. I remember the the calendar ended up going into January. So they were, you know, famous in the early '60s, and then it wasn't that much longer, and it was already like kind of over. And in my mind's eye, I always think like, oh no, they had music in like through the '70s, and it's like not yeah. really, no. Like they were releasing stuff, but yeah. it was pretty much done. Yeah, we never really finished the thought on now and then that they basically recorded, tried to record it when Harrison was still alive. That's yeah. what I didn't know in the in '90s. Yeah, and they, just they couldn't they couldn't uh, unwed Lennon's voice from the piano part. Mm -hmm. They didn't and have the technology. They yet. didn't have the technology, but now it's like you can do that on your own computer. Yeah, there's literally a website you where you yeah. can like pull out different tracks. So it's truly a collaboration across time. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we're talking. And the fact that it's a song that's intensely nostalgic, you know, now and then I oh, miss you. Yeah. It's almost. I mean, it's like it's like the world. I mean, it's like it's just got orchestrated to be this perfect yeah. artifact. And then the fact that it kind of is just a drop in the sea and no one really, it's not like I, a big deal or anything. I, you know, that happens though, right? Like things, sometimes it takes a little time for things to cook and maybe yeah, all but, of a sudden. You know, we're it, also past the era. We are in the era of utter like fragmentation yeah. of listenerships, you know? Well, I guess if you think about like TikTok videos, they're designed to be seen once and then you and move, they move on. on. Yeah. And it's like that style of music when it was created it was created to you know be these things that was then going to like affect culture and unfortunately and be present yeah ever present yeah 
and that's not how it is anymore. Well, but then, you know, you ask yourself, like, well, what is actually, like, deeply affecting the culture? And you look to somebody like, let's say, for instance, Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. She, and I don't know if this gets brought up, and obviously her fans are rabid, and any criticism of her gets just, you know, people are terrified to even say anything. But the reality is, is that there was a shift. She was the singer-songwriter, you know, who came out of nowhere and was, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, a nobody that like made it. But she was also a country artist then. And then she shifted either by herself or with the um, uh, help of, there had to have been, I have to imagine levels of corporations helping her either through uh, management or through record companies because she now is very much not a singer-songwriter. Like what is she? There's a lot of people writing on her songs. Mm. And she is a, a pop star. You know, it's like it's become a different thing. Now, I'm not saying it's good bad. I mean, the songs are still catchy as hell and mm. I was lucky enough to see it, you know, was in Chicago and got to see her perform. It's mind-blowingly amazing. These shows are are, are great. But it's also the result of she's not doing it by herself. Like there's a yeah. tremendous amount of help. But that that was always the case for every star. Yeah. There's but no... it, it, it just feels like someone came in and really, because she wasn't like this superstardom. It, th there was turns. Like if, you know, it's 2023. If in 2013, you said to me, Taylor Swift is going to be the biggest thing in the world. Is she though? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Taylor Swift is currently the most, arguably the most famous person in the world. Uh, and it's you were to tell me that Kanye West would literally be completely shunned. You'd be like, oh, wow, that's a, all right. Yeah. That's interesting. Like what happened? And you're like, mm -hmm. well, what did happen? I mean, obviously Kanye had his own demise, but t something happened with Taylor. You know, it's like. I want to kind of understand, like, why she became big. Yeah, like, what is it? Well, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, right? Well, it's it's, it's exactly what we do. Our brains are these narrative machines. We're obsessed yeah. with stories. We're constantly. And that's when we ask ourselves, you know, is there an alternate reality in which the Beatles weren't famous, and would they have still just been these four great guys creating songs in their garage or whatever? Well, those are all see, stories. My, you know? I guess my argument, and this is my opinion is that whatever the Beatles created, I think was like bigger than them. Yeah. Like it was gonna happen. Like it was they're gonna almost- happen to someone. Yeah. They were almost like a result of culture. Mm -hmm. Whereas personally, now obviously if Swifty is going to disagree with me, I don't, I feel like it's more calculated. It feels like there's somebody pulling the strings and that it's- It feel, I mean, I think that today when someone is big and when someone is, I mean, basically what we're living in this weird world where actually the people who are big stars have more eyeballs on, on them than the Beatles ever did, even in the height of their fame. Yeah. We're, that's, that's the weirdness of it. And then also there's more money at stake. Yeah. There's more people 
yeah. making more money. So people are hedging their bets and they're like, oh, let's bring in this other producer. and let's, Exactly. Let's this. It's, it's yeah. become that way. I mean, the, in a way that, and you know, the Beatles a... were kind of represented like a less sophisticated kind of music industry. Yeah. Because like, you know, the, the possibility of mass record sales was just now, you know, was just yeah. now in the last couple decades a thing. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to pile on her, like... Po- well, you used to have a thing with Taylor Swift because you went to these, you know, to these. Uh, well, it's it's, concerts. it's it, there's t- torn feelings because it's yeah. like it's so impressive, and yet there's something I can't explain to myself about it that doesn't I mean, it's, feel. It's pretty explicable. I think fame. I mean, if you know, I, I I don't think that anyone can totally plan it. There, but there's people. There's already a science behind this stuff. Yeah, and... but when I look at somebody like, and maybe it's just because I, I, it hit me at a different time, and so I can't see the illusion of it. But when I think about like Tina Turner or Bruce Springsteen, I, I think there's just something like really authentic yeah. about them that Taylor Swift just does not have. I mean, I just find her profoundly uninteresting as a person, and and I agree. And, you know, and I'm not saying I, it's I, that I would... that sells because she's the she has she's someone who like anyone can project onto because she's just not that interesting. Like on the one hand, people that are weird and extreme, like you know, like like the Rolling Stones are kind of like they're they're a little bit weird, all of them. Like yeah, and or I think of Prince. You know, he's a bit of a weirdo. Yeah. Um, and those people can get eyeballs because because they're weird but then something really special happens when someone who's totally ordinary yeah just vanilla taylor swift but honestly boy next door beatles that that kind of something happens in the culture where a mass audience can identify with them well and they can probably survive more because there's less to kind of complain about exactly they're they're they just they're unobjectionable on some level yeah and I see that with comedy a lot, uh-huh. where you you watch you know comics and you know you're like, I just it it's so it just feels like a nothing burger, <laughs> but it also people are laughing yeah, but it's not really about anything and it it's just very uninspired to me, and not even to say that I am that, that there's not part of me that isn't jealous of some of those people's success. Mm-hmm. Because they are so like no one complains, whereas I would have been more brash and bold and said my opinions. It's just fascinating to see when that works and when it doesn't. Because I mean, you're, you're right, Prince is totally a, a way, way, way more just like naturally interesting, interesting human person. being, yeah, than let's say like Paul McCartney. Just as like if outside of the music, he just seems like a real nice lad. Yeah, you know, a like guy. a really good guy. <laughs> You know, and not to say that Prince wasn't a good guy, but he was just like, there's just something about that guy that was like so mysterious. But um, I also want I mean, I just wanted to just because I agree with these sentiments so much. So much Ned Roram wrote uh, an essay, which apparently is well known, called The Music of the Beatles, in which he analyzed the Beatles as a classical composer. Yeah. But I just wanted to read the beginning of it just because I find it so I, I feel exactly like him. Um, and he was writing this in, this was nine, in, published in 1968. And it starts with, I never go to classical concerts anymore, and I don't know anyone who does. It's hard still to care whether some virtuoso tonight will perform the Moonlight Sonata a bit better or a bit worse than another virtuoso performed it last night. 
but I do often attend what used to be called avant-garde recitals, though seldom with delight, and, uh, and inevitably I look around and wonder, what am I doing here? That's how Ned Roram opens in 1968 his... Um, radical essay on the Beatles. And this was about when they started, it was in the 60s that the Beatles well, started to be so, taken so, in yeah, so to the classical music world and people's in the classical... Through the avant-garde? So he got tired of going to avant-garde and then how did he end up in the Beatles? Well, I mean, the Beatles were everywhere. They were just in the air, you know, yeah. famous. So he, he knew their music that way. The thing is, like, this, this is pretty normal for someone in a classical music magazine to be writing about the Beatles these days, actually. Yeah. But at that time, this was a radical statement because his, his indictment is, why can't we get people as excited as the Beatles? Why do I look around? And I, I feel this way when I go to avant-garde music concerts all the time. I look around and it's like the emperor's new clothes. Why, what am I doing here? What is this giving me? What, am I, what is this except a social game? Well, um, that's exactly what it is. It's a, it it's is, a, it's yeah. a way for people to you know, espouse their values and think that they're... And connect and network yeah, and... Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I guess that's the thing that I, I kind of... I've, I've grown to kind of not enjoy is these little high schools where you can tell yeah. that it's so insulary that the things that matter here matter so much, but, like, if you get just a little bit outside of it, it doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And to be really careful about which one of those high schools as an adult you yeah. choose to be a part of because you could care about things that really, really, really don't matter. And yeah. I don't And you can you can see your self worth um in ways that just are not relevant to, to the whole Yeah. So we, did we get what you wanted to talk about with Kathy Barbarian? Like No, I well I wanted to just end with Kathy. I mean there's not much to talk about, but you know, Kathy Barbarian is my is my hero. And what I, what is interesting about her, so she was called the Muse of Darmstadt because Darmstadt used to be a huge hub for compo for contemporary composers of yeah. like the 50s, 60s. Um, and a lot we owe a lot of the the tradition of experimental vocal music. Yeah. So Cage's aria, Sequenza Tre, which is I'm learning that right now for the first time, and it's it's it and it's an iconic piece of vocal experimentation but so many other pieces that she inspired. Uh, she inspired them because she would at part, I mean, this is, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. So it's a bit of a, you know, it's an anecdote, but um, she would she would do a lot of like, do lots of different voices and imitate a lot of different styles in parties I mean, the to videos you've sent me are like, we'll, we should put some links to them because they are well, beautifully absurd some. yeah yeah her version of ticket to ride is oh yes well but see <laughs> but that's later so so she was part of the big avant-garde right so yeah. doing you know so just like, stuff like that and then later in her in her career she turned away from that consciously and she wanted to do stuff that people would actually enjoy Right. So she would do these concerts, these campy concerts. There's actually there's a an essay in a in a book um, about Kathy Barbarian called Kathy Barbarian's Notes on Camp. Yeah. Um, Notes on Camp is a is like an essay campiness. by campiness. Notes yeah. on Camp is an essay by Susan Sontag. We should we should just do a whole episode on Notes on Camp because yeah. it's just it's it is a crossover. It's something that appears in both high and low uh -huh. art it, it it's so it's it makes your mind implode yeah. on itself well because but it that essay like... by susan sontag is a really nice read because she actually does it in bullet but like she doesn't write a continuous text it's like these weird bullet points 
because she's acknowledging how slippery the term is. And so she yeah. says, and basically the structure is, this is a, an example of camp. This gotcha. is an example of camp. This is an example of camp. Interesting. Yeah. And then there's a, a fireplace with a tent. She's like, this is not the camp I'm talking about. <laughs> if she were doing a video essay in 2023, yeah. yes, that is what she would do. Susan Sontag, the YouTuber, video essayist. Um, so, but like, so Kathy Roverian was being intentionally campy and she, for example, she did Ticket to Ride and the version she did was a bad classical oratorio singer from the province. Let's we we get though bit. how like up its own ass it can be at that point. What? When someone is intentionally doing something that's bad. You it's know? camp. Like that yeah. is pure. And, I mean, it's not pure camp according to Susan Sontag, but it's it's self-aware camp. Yeah, that's where it get. That's that area where you're like, oh no, it's it's beautiful because it's bad, and you're like, mm -hmm. when I'm on the inside of that, it's fun. Like mm -hmm. I'm like, when I get it, it's great. But I totally can understand when someone would be like, this is just stupid. Like I think, I mean, what Kathy Barbarian was trying to do, she was really just trying to attract audiences yeah. too. Cause like, you know, well, it's so hilarious that we're still talking about like, where are the classical music audiences doing? They were having the same conversations in the fucking sixties, yeah. the same damn ones. Yeah, yeah. We're still, and that's, what's so fascinating about also Joan Didion's like work because she's so in the, her stuff that comes out of the sixties because you realize, I mean, at least I realized rereading the white album that she's talking about the same themes yes that we are talking about today yes. we are living in some kind of post 60s still yeah i'm not sure that the real paradigm shift has uh, maybe we're living through it right now well I, I there's no denying how the internet you know changed things that that will yeah. be a, a major when you look back they'll be pre that and post oh, that there will but i'm also the more i think about it the the more i think actually the internet was just accelerate it accelerated something that was already happening yeah. i mean you had the medium is the message and, and the, the, the whole blending of pop culture and just that the moment the TV became the hearth of people's homes, that was a paradigm shift for which the, the internet is kind of a tail yeah. end. No, I agree. Let's listen to a little bit of Ticket to Ride. <laughs> it's so good. She's wearing she's, like a moon. Yeah. <laughs> but she's doing everything wrong, like that most singers yeah, do it, wrong. The problem is, doesn't that feel disingenuine at some point? No, she's making fun of it. It's a send up of her own world that she comes from. Gotcha. So it's a little Steve Martinus. I think I'm going to be sad. I think it's today. The man that's driving me mad is going away. He's got a ticket to ride. He's got a ticket to ride. He's got a ticket to ride, but he don't care. She also wrote a piece called, uh, her, her only composition, actually, that's really credited to her is called Strip City. Mm -hmm. And she worked on it with a graph, uh, an artist who works on graphic novels. And it's basically just sounds from graphic novels mm -hmm. strung together that she performs. So 
so when you say graphic novels, you you mean like the dialogue from a graphic novel spoken? Um, well, I'll show it to you. Since we're doing high-low art, we can end on that. Yeah. She's gonna take her to ride in the weather to go to the mercury clinic. So, knock, knock, huh? Oh, smack. Grunt. What are those yeah. called? Yeah. Alliteration? Yeah. Or, those uh, are onomatopoeia sounds yeah. from... Uh, the, the, like strip city, it's come, you know, the yep, comic yep, strip. Yep, yep, yep. Strip city. Strip strip city is what it's called. Strip city. And it's from the so comic strip is what she's. Gotcha. So it's like the bangs and the uh -huh. you know from comic strip. She's like bringing it to a vocal level. She's just stringing it together yeah. into this weird composition. Interesting. So this is. What year is this? Oh, it's written in 1966. So yeah. that's the year when she wrote her uh, her manifesto in Italian. Uh, la nuova vocalità nell'opera contemporanea. She, um, she speaks Italian? Yes, she spoke. Well, her husband was Luciano Berio, who was an Italian composer. And oh, she, how did I not know that? In 1966, she wrote this manifesto, which started with, with the line, what is this new vocality that so frightens the old guard? So she was, you know, in 1966, she was saying, look, we need to get out of our own asses when it comes to classical singing. And this is, you know, Strip City is just a, a work of pure postmodernism, yeah. really. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the female singing version of like Andy Warhol. You're you're so influenced by all this pop culture that you end up kind of like Yeah. The snake kind of ends up eating its own tail. Yeah. But the problem with that is that sometimes and Mark Twain talked about this, like if everything is sarcastic, if nothing is if you have you don't really care about what you're saying or you're not saying anything like that's just truly authentic. Like where are we? Like, well, I, it's in, interestingly, I think Kathy Barbarian, by doing Beatles songs, she was trying to get back to some kind of pathos that she felt was lost. Yeah, but at the core of it, is it just like, again, and you know, she an, did an that artist trying to just find their way. Like, is that the authentic part of this, where it's just like, hey, this is just somebody who's just trying to figure it out, an audience, and trying to. Well, she, I mean, look, she was very successful in her time. She was famous in her, her circles and she would, you know, she would do these concerts and, and make her living that way. So I think she was pretty, she was sitting pretty actually. Interesting. Well, people should um, take a look at Kathy Barbarian. She's, I mean, she's a really interesting, and there's a, you know, if you're a it scholarly just, type, there's a book called Kathy Barbarian, Pioneer of Contemporary Vocality. It feel That's like really she cool. would, it, it, feels like that is the next you know biopic like she seems like she would be well i mean in a weird way her life is not that interesting but you could yeah or she could at least be a character i mean she's such oh, a for character sure, for sure oh that's well i mean look i'm impersonating her in my show diva lazarus Ooh. i'm gonna be putting donning self plug donning mm. a blonde wig Interesting. And she tells the story about the negative reaction of the public to one of John Cage's first vocal experimental pieces. Yeah. And I retell this funny anecdote that she tells while singing the piece that nice. had the negative reaction. So I think we've, I mean, we've taken a little little ride with the Beatles and yeah. we ended up with in the avant-garde. And... To wrap it completely um, up, I think people should go listen to Now and Then. Yes, if you haven't already, listen to Now and yeah. Then and then listen to Kathy Barbarian's covers of the Beatles. Thank you for having me.
thank you for being here. Do we have? And thank you for turning me on to the subject of the Beatles. I wouldn't have done that on my own. Yeah, you have a tendency to be uh, quicker to condemn popular things. But see, I mean, I'm doing this segment because I don't want to do that, and I don't. No, I get that, but that is its own. But I don't condemn them because of quality. I think it just has everything to do with my own frustration. Like I, I actually really don't. I would love to just be. Um, like I don't want anyone to know about me, but I want to be able to do my work. And the problem is that you kind of have to be famous in order to do the work <laughs> that we want to do. And I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to be thinking about building an audience. I don't like being the center of attention even, but I've, I've had like moments when I was like really depressed and then I got to perform and the performing suddenly made, gave life meaning yeah. again. You know, but what do you do with that when it's so, when live performing in general is threatened, you know? And, yeah. Um, and I, when you've when you've frankly you know studied something that is just only really viable within a, an industry, you adjust that is yeah, yeah which make, is what I'm doing. Yeah, we make and, adjustments and we be doing, people of our time and. So yeah, that was the that was our Beatles episode. We could have to do like three more episodes on the Beatles and the avant garde. Oh, obviously, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed that conversation from the high-low art divide. We're recording some interesting episodes these days while I'm in the U.S. about creative jealousy, camp, and independent movie making, among other things. We even recently got to interview William Derezowitz, whose book, The Death of the Artist, we have discussed quite a bit on past episodes. Subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. New episodes of this segment come out every other Saturday, until further notice. An opera singer and a comedian walk into a bar is a segment of the Artists on the Verge podcast recorded and edited by me, Emma Katrovis. The theme song is my cover of Stars by Janice Ian. Here's to being on the verge. <laughs>